Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning with you. You know, for William Shakespeare, it's likely Hamlet. For Harper Lee, easily to kill a mockingbird. President Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address. For Leonardo da Vinci, you guys help me out. The Mona Lisa. Okay, I think I heard it. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Well, and Billy Ray Cyrus. Come on now. Achy breaky heart. Examples, each of them, of what is commonly referred to as a magnum opus. A magnum opus, one's great work. A masterpiece for which the author, the artist, the speaker is forever linked. A work that is so significant that it leaves a lasting impression on everyone who encounters it. A magnum opus. This morning, we begin a new series for which we are so excited. A series titled, I Am Not Ashamed. It is a series on the New Testament book of Romans. And of all the descriptions that I came across during my time of preparation, the one that I saw most often was that the book of Romans was the Apostle Paul's magnum opus, suggesting that it was not only the most comprehensive of Paul's writings, but that it would leave a lasting impression, make a lasting impact on everyone who reads it. A magnum opus. And we may say, well, why is that? Why is that attributed to this book? Well, for starters, this masterpiece of Paul's is the most comprehensive of books as is stated, but it is also the most systematic of doctrines and practice and definitions of the gospel that we see in the entire New Testament. It's here that we see Paul's, uh, his theology. We see his pastoral convictions. We also see the impact it's had on the history of the church. It's well documented. For the early century theologian Augustine, the book of Romans was said to have been the seed plot of faith. It is where he found true peace with God. Martin Luther, he based a reformation on the central teaching of Romans, that justification was by grace through faith alone. And of the great awakening pastors and scholars, the book of Romans was said to have ignited the mind of Jonathan Edwards, to have strangely warmed the heart of John Wesley, and to fueled the spiritual fire of George Whitfield. Paul's magnum opus has transformed the lives of millions. And it's our prayer that over the next few weeks and months through this series, that it will transform, it will ignite minds, it will warm hearts, it will, it will fuel spiritual fires in each of us. And so this morning, two objectives. Two objectives. Briefly, we want to do a background on this, this book, this beautiful, wonderful book of Romans a little bit of background about the series, and then we're going to jump right in. We're going to look at one of the most remarkable opening passages of any book in Scripture, the first 17 verses of chapter 1 in Romans. So, we're ready? Let's begin. See, most commentators believe that the book of Romans was written in A.D. 57. That's pretty much consensus. It was written from uh, the town of Corinth, from when Paul was at the tail end of his third missionary journey. 
And in most of our Bibles, when you turn to Romans, what you'll see is the title is the letter of Paul to the Romans. Now that's, that's pretty broad, actually. Who exactly is the intended audience of this letter? I mean, at this point, there's four to five million Romans across the entire empire. There's a million Romans in the capital city of Rome. And so who is Paul's intended audience? Well, Paul will clarify this. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he says that this is written to all of those in Rome, in the city, who were loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, this is a letter to the believers in the capital city of Rome, where scholars are suggested that there were approximately, give or take, a thousand Jewish and Gentile Christians who were worshiping across maybe a half dozen to a dozen home churches. That's the Roman church for which this letter is addressed. And, you know, in that, even in that, um, I hope you caught the context of that. A thousand believers living among a million, mostly hostile, socially, economically, ethnically divided, power and pleasure-seeking, highly immoral residents of Rome. This wasn't Mr. Rogers' neighborhood for certain. And I think that's really important because throughout this letter, Paul is going to instruct the Roman church to live life on mission despite your circumstances. And throughout this series, we're going to be encouraged to evaluate whether we are living life on mission despite our circumstances. And I do think that if we have a perspective of these early brothers and sisters, it, it helps us. It helps move us forward in that. And so don't, don't miss that context. Well, so when and to who, and then lastly, for our background, why? What was the purpose of this letter that Paul seems to imply here? Well, as it became the foundational document, really, in Christianity, I think there were a few reasons, but one of the reasons is that Paul had never traveled to Rome. He had never met these believers as he had throughout most of the other churches. And so this letter is a relationship-building letter. It's a I-want-to-get-to-know-you letter to the church in Rome so that one day he would be received, he would be welcomed in as he traveled there. He tells us in chapter 15 so that he can also then travel on to Spain from there. Another purpose is that while he had not previously ever interacted with the church in Rome, he had heard much about them. See, likely the church in Rome had been established by a group of Jewish Christians who were returning from Pentecost in Jerusalem some 25 years prior. Okay. He had heard uh, that they were also faithful, genuine believers in their faith. And yet he also had heard there was an area of concern that he had to address. And throughout this letter, we're going to see this sort of flavoring the entire letter. And this is that. It, it's that the Jewish and Gentile members were starting to have a, a significant amount of tension between the two of them. There was a slight crack that was developing in the unity of the church. And I think Paul knew, as, as we know well, that when we have division in a local body church, then the effectiveness 
and the witness of that church um, is diminished. It's fatal to the local body church. And so this issue of division, it's going to be really important to understand as we move through the book of Romans. And there were historical causes at play that attributed to this. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was really that good old human fallen condition, pride and prejudice. And Paul had to address it, but he had to be careful in how he addressed it. And we're going to see this as well. See, as, as he had heard news about the church in Rome, the church at Rome had also heard news about him. Paul's reputation preceded himself. You know, everyone uh, knew that word traveled about this church planner, church missionary, evangelist. He was well respected, but he was also controversial. And so to those who had not met Paul, this letter is going to serve as a, um, a letter that would be critical in determining how much weight his teaching carried in this church, how much authority he would actually have with these believers and he had to be careful in how he addressed it. It's like they say, you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And this is what Paul has to be careful about here. So he needs to introduce himself. He's building a relationship. He speaks into this tension of division while addressing the preconceived notions that both Jewish and Gentile Christians had about them. Those, those controversial parts. And what I mean by that is that often the Jewish Christians, they thought that Paul was giving away too much tradition, that he was not respectful of their heritage, of their forefathers, even at times of the law. And so they were leery. Gentile Christians thought Paul was too Jewish, that he was still tied to his life as a Pharisee and a defender of Judaism. So they were leery. And what we're going to see in Romans, we'll keep our eyes open for this. What we're going to see is that Paul is going to go to great lengths to prove that the gospel of Jesus Christ is A, rooted in the Old Testament and in God's chosen people, Israel. And at the same time, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people apart from the law. That God is an all nation, all people God addressing Jewish and Christian concerns. It's an inspired approach. It's an extensive approach. Paul is going to build credibility, and he's going to do so by continually hammering in the theme to this entire book, that a loving God has offered salvation to a sinful people through the life and death of his son. AKA, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the overarching theme of this entire book of Romans, the gospel. Martin Luther, he once in a sermon, he had said about the book of Romans, it was plain and simple, the purest gospel. See, at a time when uh, the records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not only had they not been distributed, they likely hadn't even been written yet. And so the church at Rome received, quite literally, the gospel, according to Paul. And that's exactly what we have received and is exactly what will be the focus of this teaching series. So 
just a bit of background, just a little bit of the high-level expectations of what we get into when we start moving through the book of Romans. I think you see why it's, it's really exciting for everyone. Um, it's also a good time to say, before we look at this first passage, that for additional background, study questions, uh, materials, I would remind you that the sermon guides are intended to do that for us. Uh, they're at the Resource Center. You can also uh, get them online. Uh, we have found them to be beneficial in, you know, growing personally, growing in our groups, uh, sharing with others. Uh, but really, whatever way you connect with I am not ashamed over these next weeks and months, we are prayerful that this is going to be a fruitful season of learning and loving and living out God's Word. And so with that, let's turn to God's Word and let's look at one of the most amazing introductory passages in Scripture Chapter 1, and we're going to look first at verses 1 through 7. This is typically referred to as Paul's greeting. And now one thing we know is that the, the greetings, if you've read any of the rest of the, the, the letters, the epistles in Scripture, you know that greetings were standard. They were more formal than our modern greeting. But this greeting in Romans, it, it's more profound than even for a first century expectation, uh, than, than those standards. Paul's not simply being cordial. Remember our background. Paul is introducing himself. He's providing a description of what is most important for his reader to understand about who he is. What are his characteristics? How will they get to know him? What is his identity? And notice how he does this in the very first verse of our passage here. He describes himself three ways. He says he is a servant of the Lord Jesus, that he is an apostle or one who has been sent, and that he is set apart for the gospel of God. A servant who's been sent and set apart. And if you're, if you're familiar with Paul at all, then you might know that his stature as teacher, scholar, leader, that was second to none. And that, that would have been a really big deal for the Gentiles. He was also schooled by the Jewish master Gamaliel, and he could recite the Hebrew Bible. That would have been a big deal for the Jewish Christians. He was also a Roman citizen. That would have been a big deal for anyone living in Rome. And yet his opening, as impressive as it could have been, all of these achievements and accomplishments, he could have garnered significant respect just right off the bat. He didn't do that. He didn't go the way of, of maybe you and I tend to do, the hashtag, look at me. Now, Paul's calling card is that he was a servant, a slave, doulos, in the original language, doulos, it was a despicable word, just as it is today, mostly. No one wanted that title. Yet Paul chose the, des the designation of being a slave to Jesus Christ as, the, as loftier and more impressive than anything else he could have said about himself. He then says he's an apostle, and in this context, that's one who's sent under the authority of someone else with a message or a task, and I think we see that. That's pretty clear. And then thirdly, and I think this is really critical. This is going to be at the heart of what we're going to talk about for the remaining time. 
Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel. And you know, the more I study the letters of Paul, including Romans, the more I discover that the idea of being set apart for the gospel in words and deeds and actions, that's central to who Paul is. That's central to his life message. That's central to his message of faith. I'll sometimes, uh, with our small group, I refer to it as, uh, it's the Pauline theology. It's, it's Paul's be different because of the gospel theology that we see throughout Scripture of really how we're all to view ourselves. I mean, so think about it. Paul leads off with, hi, my name is Paul. I am first and foremost a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who has been sent with a message, and I live differently because of that message. Wow, that's pretty good. That's consistent with how Scripture says we are to go about our day every day, how we're to interact with others and think about ourselves. And we say, well, why? Why do we have to do that? Well, not because Paul did, not even because Paul modeled that. But because the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our identity. And even in this first sentence of the first greeting of this passage, Paul is emphasizing the life-changing reality of that. That we are servants, if you're a follower of Jesus, called under the authority of God and set apart for the gospel. Period. And and honestly, the remainder of Romans, all 16 chapters, is really a matter of just fleshing out the details of that one statement. And Paul, Paul can't wait to get to it. When I say the remainder of Romans, verse 2, it's where it starts. Verse 2, he says, and so since I'm set apart for this gospel, let me tell you about the gospel. Let me tell you first that the gospel is that which he, God, promised beforehand that he, God, promised through his prophets, that he, God, promised in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, I think what the timing on this, we've seen this through our One Story series last year. This is what Paul's pointing to. This is, this is Paul saying, you can't know the gospel and have a thorough understanding of the gospel of the New Testament if you don't know the gospel that is being shown to us and promised to us in the Old Testament. And for anyone who, who is still uncertain about that after our year of, uh, of unified whole of Scripture, notice that we'll notice actually in, in the book of Romans throughout, Paul is going to use direct Old Testament quotes some 51 times. He is going to use indirect paraphrase quotes of the Old Testament 10 times. He is going to use these clear Old Testament allusions over a dozen times. 75 plus times in this book of Romans, we are going to see uh, Paul proclaiming the gospel by pointing to the Old Testament scripture. That's remarkable. I think that's remarkable. And I think it, it, again, it shows us that we can't grasp all that God has done or all that he is doing if we don't have a perspective of the Old and New Testaments together. Romans is going to be a wonderful wonderful example of that. So he says that, so the gospel has been proclaimed. We see it in our scripture. Let me tell you a little bit else about what the gospel, this is still my greeting. Let me tell you a little bit else about what the gospel is. The gospel is the son of God. 
The gospel is Jesus. See, it's concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. It's Jesus who was fully human and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus is fully God, fully divine. By his resurrection from the dead, what he's done, Jesus Christ is then our Lord. He is who we submit to, his lordship, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. He is the only way we grow in our obedience and mature in our faith. So in summary, in this greeting, Jesus is fully human. This is the gospel. Let me tell you about it. He's also fully God, and he is our Lord. For those who would say we are followers, we believe in the gospel, we submit to his lordship. We surrender so that we might receive the grace to grow in obedience and mature in faith. The greeting of Paul, what I want my audience to know most about me. This is, this is great. This is, this is encouraging, I think. This is, of all the takeaways that we can get out of Paul's initial greeting here, I think this last one is really clear to me, is that a biblical understanding of who Jesus Christ is is so important. See, we have to know that any claim that says Jesus is anyone or anything other than God in human flesh who died and rose again in order that we might be restored in relationship with God, any claim that denies any of that is a false claim. It's not biblical. It certainly, as Paul would say, is not the gospel truth. So just this wonderful greeting, good stuff, and then he, he shifts as still really part of the introduction to saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know who I am, what's important to me, the gospel understanding. Let me give you some words of encouragement. Let me give you some words of encouragement. I don't know you, but here's what I know in verses 8 through 11. I want to tell you that I affirm you. I thank God for you because of your faith. Paul says also, I pray for you. Always in my prayers, without ceasing, I mention you. Paul also expresses his desire to be with them. I long to see you. Again, he has, we haven't met. We don't know each other. There's been no FaceTime or even emails across the way. We just don't. We're, but these are, these are the, the true, genuine model of encouragement that Paul has for fellow believers in Christ. And then he says, I promise to assist you. That I may impart these spiritual gifts and may strengthen you. Words of comfort with offers of assistance. I think that's a model of genuine encouragement. It reminds me also of Paul's words uh, to the Thessalonians, where he says, continue to encourage one another in the church and build one another up. And I think we, I think we know how important that is. If we, if we didn't a year ago today, I think we know today how important encouragement is among brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know, you know, sometimes uh, we don't feel like it. We don't feel like there's enough in us to really offer encouragement or to affirm someone else. And I can't imagine, even in, in, in this room, and, and certainly those who are viewing online, uh, the difficult situations, uh, the pain, loneliness, fatigue, but I know from 
personal experience. This is just my experience. I know that often when I encourage someone else or affirm someone else, even when I'm thinking, man, I, just, I don't feel like I can really do this. I don't have it in me to really give it to someone else. I know in those moments, most often, not always, but most often, my spirits are lifted. I'm renewed in my strength. And I think that's what's going on here. If, if anyone, if anyone had any reason to be discouraged, depressed, lonely, worn out, it was the Apostle Paul. He had been rejected his entire ministry. And then, of course, we think about the Roman Christians, right, living among all of this harassment and temptation, being faithful. And so Paul, in this, inspired in verse 12, look what he says. He says, I want to visit you for this reason also, that we might mutually encourage each other in our faith. That we might mutually encourage each other in our faith. Together is better. <laughs> in the fellowship, again, of, of the church, and I'm convinced that that truth, that principle, is one of the many reasons why this pandemic has been so difficult on so many of us. You know, encouragement from a distance is wonderful. And as we've seen, it's sometimes necessary. But encouragement in person, ah, oh, it's more wonderful. That's more wonderful. And I can just see Paul, this is, I long to see you because I want to be mutually encouraged. I try to remind myself when I see this that, uh, like the proverb says, you know, iron sharpens iron, iron encourages iron. And so Paul starts to bring this greeting to a close, and he does so in verse 15. And so, all of this, and so, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Full circle. Verse 1, I am set apart for the gospel. Now let me tell you what the gospel is. Let me encourage you in the gospel. Oh, now I'm ready to preach it to you. I'm ready for us to talk about it in person. Do you think the Roman believers at this point in the letter knew what the subject of the letter might actually be about? I think they did. I think they did. And if they didn't, then um, the very next proclamation from Paul is going to remove any of those doubts or uncertainty. He is going to clarify it with one of the most monumental verses in all of the New Testament. It is the theme of this entire teaching series Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Have you ever heard someone say, that'll preach? That'll preach. That's what I think of when I, when I read this verse. Forceful, concise, eloquent, a statement that is making clear from Paul right here that there is nothing any more important in this world, in this life, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because for the, through the gospel, God has gifted us the power and the path to salvation. And so if, if by Tuesday of this week, you have forgotten everything I've said today, Please, please, please don't forget this verse. Recite it, pray it, sing it, meditate on it, 
chew on it, post it on your bathroom mirror. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, period. Bottom line, this is the the magnum opus within the magnum opus, 116. And I sometimes, I also in looking at this, it it did dawn on me, I'm I'm thinking, and maybe you, you not see it the same way, but um, I thought this was a curious way of saying this, though. For I am not ashamed. Why would Paul feel the need to write, I am not ashamed? His, his reputation preceded himself. He's already in the greeting made clear he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why might he use that particular phrasing? Well, I, you know, I found to pr- appreciate Paul's word choice here, we have to do something that we should always do. We have to look at the cultural context. See, Paul is writing into a time for which the cross in general was something very offensive. Anyone would be shamed by the cross, but the cross of Christ was particularly offensive. Would-be believers could be shamed out of full confession by the cross of Christ. I think about what Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians even when he said the word of the cross, the teaching of the cross, the gospel of the cross is foolishness, folly to those that don't know Jesus. But to those who are being saved, there's that word again, it is the power of God. That's pretty awesome. We also get this sense, I think this is really interesting, we get this from a sense of a historical artifact. This was something that was found from the time of, maybe a little bit after the time of Paul. It is something called the graffito blasphemo. That's fun to say, the graffito blasphemo. It's early century graffiti is what it is. Yeah, they had it then as well. And you'll see the actual stone on the left. I believe it's housed in a British museum today. Not positive, I thought that's what I saw. The right side is just a tracing so that we can see it a little bit more clearly. And what it depicts is a man worshiping the crucified Christ. You'll notice that uh, there is a, uh, the head of a donkey is on Jesus, while a soldier, and apparently from the graffiti scribblings, his name was Alexandros, is actually worshiping with his raised hand. And the implication is clear. Whoever made this graffiti either knew Alexandros or used him as sort of depicting a general group, is saying, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is silly. This is insane. This is offensive. Paul's writing into that. He's addressing the cultural attitude by saying, no, 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 no. To the contrary. To the contrary. I, we are not ashamed. It's far from offensive. It's counter. It's it's the power to save. See, this emphasis, I think, would have certainly boosted the confidence, actually, of the church to live boldly in the face of of ridicule. I think we need that. I think that's why a lot of us, that's why we gather together. I don't think, I know. We gather often to be boosted in our confidence to live boldly. And that's what, that's what we're prayerful in this season as well is going to happen. We need that divine inspired confidence, I think, often. And so that begs the question, do we live boldly in the face of ridicule? Are we ashamed of the cross of Jesus? I think we have to ask ourselves that. 
I mean, the sentiment of the graffito blasphemo is still present. Not, not any more, not any less. It will always be there. Scripture makes clear that. That the good news will always be offensive and foolish through a secular lens. The temptation, peer pressure to feel ashamed of the gospel, well, it's always going to be strong, particularly if acceptance or popularity is the objective. And Paul, in essence, is saying here, the gospel is everything. Nothing can move me off this position. Not humiliation, not rejection, not fear. He was consumed by the gospel. And his readers would have to ask themselves, am I consumed by the gospel and the power of salvation, or am I consumed by something worldly, pleasures and prizes, and a counterfeit salvation? See, I do think there's a direct correlation. I really do. I think there's a correlation between the the what consumes us. What truly consumes us? What do we talk about, think about? What, What determines our joy or lack thereof? That what, whatever it is, good, neutral, whatever it is. And the what that we are least ashamed about. What we would say, I am not ashamed of this. And what I am most consumed about If you prioritize those up, I think that's the same what. I think, you know, the example I I thought was, you know, we think about sports teams sometimes, right? I mean, goodness, uh, if something consumes me from a sports team, I'll I'll paint my face up, right? I'll put a foam cheese head on my head. Pastor Beatty said somewhat, even wear a Duke sweatshirt, how shameful. (laughs) You do it, you're just not ashamed. I'm consumed, right? Well, (laughs) the what? We have to ask ourselves. And Paul says, you know, I'm not ashamed because the gospel consumes me. Mock me all you want. I'm not ashamed because it's the power of salvation. Mock me all you want. And I think that's a final caution here. This is sort of a note. I'm going a little bit off this a bit, but I just felt the need to sort of caution us here that the, the mindset of mock me all you want, that I will leave, live boldly and confident in the gospel of Jesus, is the mindset we want to have. But at the same time, that does not, um, that does not bring about or warrant a self-righteous gospel chip on our shoulder. See, when we live boldly and confident for the gospel, as, as did Paul, we have to be diligent about remaining aligned with the set-apart, be-different theology. Especially in how we respond to those who mock us or to those who don't believe. So stay, stay with me on this, please. I think this is really important. This is convicting to me, and I hope, I hope it, it, it really lands here. T- two examples. We think about a worldly example. Uh, we, we have someone who's not a believer in Christ, let's say not set apart, and they are consumed by a worldly interest, and I'm just far-fetched, I'm just going to say um, politics. It's what they think about, talk good or neutral, what they think about, talk about, consumes them, but, but even more, it drives and determines their joy or their lack thereof, their peace or their discontent, and their responses to other. If you don't agree with me, then I, I, I certainly uh, can't agree with you. I am angered. I speak poorly of you. I might even, maybe, mm, 
I know this is highly unlikely, but I might post some snarky, satirical, almost hateful comment about you. Right? And so this is an expected response from someone who is not set apart and consumed by a worldly passion. Okay? See this example. All right, so, and if believers were not careful, we can be consumed by the greatest thing, the gospel, and still respond to those who oppose us in the same worldly fashion. Scripture would say very clearly that our response to those for whom the gospel is foolishness is never combative. It is not about being louder. It is not about using unkind words, lacking in compassion. It is intentionally the opposite of that. For those of us who would say, yes, we are servants of the Lord, we are called with a message and set apart by that message, we are reminded by what John Bradford, 16th century English reformer, would sum up in his saying, there, but for the grace of God, go I. When we are confronted by attacks on the gospel, mocked as foolish, faced with graffiti all around us, blasphemo, we hold firm to biblical convictions, we embrace truth and grace and love, and we recall that in Scripture we're told that we ourselves were once foolish, slaves to passion, hating one another in Titus. In Scripture we see that they are just as us who formerly disobeyed to the Romans, that they are what some of us were to the Corinthians, that we lived among them and used to walk in those same ways to the Colossians. On and on and on. The power of the gospel is the power to change lives so radically that living unashamed really means living ready and available. Being ready to provide answers to those who ask us the reason for our hope. Being persistent in our prayers for those who mock us. Being kind and selfless, willing to serve those who disagree and just don't know Jesus yet. It's a posture of sadness and urgency, not anger and frustration. That's the power of the gospel to live boldly, unashamed, and be different in order that others might also inquire, desire, and receive that same power. Man, there's so much more. <laughs> We're not going to get to verse 17. Please read it. It's good. It's going to come up throughout the rest of our series, uh, a statement of faith uh, that we'll continue to talk about, but we need to conclude. Uh, and this morning, I want to conclude with just a quick look at our key word, our word, the gospel. Its origin is a word that describes someone who is bringing good news, euangelio. So gospel, good news, it's why it's often used interchangeably. But the more I think about it, I think good news is such an understatement. I think it's great news. I think the gospel is great news, the complete and necessary work of Jesus. And I'd like to leave us with three tangible ways that we can see the gospel go from great to good. The opposite of that. How about from good to great? Three ways that the gospel can go from good to great in our own lives. Number one, when we accept the gospel. See, the gospel is an invitation. We don't change it. We don't customize it. We don't culturalize it. We accept it as it is. When we confess and believe that Jesus paid our sins through his life, death, and resurrection in order that we may be restored in relationship to God, 
We make the good news great news. And if you're here this morning, if you're online and you've never made that confession of faith, please let us know. We would love to talk to you if you're just curious. That's our highest, highest responsibility and privilege to speak to you about those things on this subject matter, the gospel. Accept the gospel. From good to great, number two, when we live out the gospel, be different, be set apart. Allow the power of the gospel to fully transform us as we move through our day, every day. And, and do, do know on this, when we say live out, live it out, live it out boldly and confident, this is not a call to start sporting more gospel wear or Jesus attire. That's good stuff, great stuff. Please, it beats the alternatives. But truly living out boldly and living it out is great news. That's when we sport a consistent and faithful witness, a witness of Christ's likeness. That's when we put on a desire to do all things for the glory of God. That's when we clothe ourselves with the ability to do all things without grumbling and complaining, with contentment and joy, when we consider others first. That's the living out of the gospel that is desperately needed. So experience that great news of the good news by living out the gospel. And then thirdly, from good to great, when we share the gospel. If we've accepted the gospel and we're desiring to live out the gospel, then a natural progression is our willingness to share the gospel. You know, countless numbers, and, and maybe even some of you here in the same room have testimonies of coming to know the good news because someone was intentional in sharing it. And I know that that's often an area we struggle with. We're hesitant. We're not sure of the approach, the why, all that sort of thing. And if it is, no, you're, you're not alone. But also know that that is um, something very intentional about this gospel sharing year. The activities of our church are going to be around the idea of equipping one another to better share the gospel in order that we might enable the Lord to make the good news great news in the lives of others. So accepting the gospel, living out the gospel, sharing the gospel, never ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are, we are so grateful and we are so humbled, Lord, that you would give us your word this morning that you would inspire it and you would preserve it through uh, your servant Paul, Lord, uh, these words. They are words of encouragement. They are words, Lord, of conviction. They are words of hope. Uh, Lord, they are words of salvation. Uh, Lord, may we uh, move about our week as servants to you. May we know that we are called and sent with a message from you under your authority. And Lord, May we be set apart in this week. We ask this all in your name. Amen.